0: all right hello everyone and happy Friday today is August 14th and this is episode 14 of our Google Hangouts and podcasts on all things docsis I'm Brady Volpe founder of the Volp firm and nimble this today we have news updates from the proactive network maintenance meeting at cable labs in Colorado last week the SCTE Expo is less than two months away, and you have questions and we have answers for those questions. With me today is John Downey, prognosticator of mini slots and consulting network engineer at Cisco Systems. John,
1: how have you been? My new title, prognosticator of mini slots. So- <laughs> you'll get a, you'll get a new one every every week.
0: So.
1: I can give you the forecast of how many slots
0: are allocated. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you, you, you'll optimize. So we'll just you know, we'll, we'll create a little web page. You can dial in, and we'll say, "Well, what should our minutes slots be this week?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> Appreciate that. Yeah. So, hey, weren't you supposed to be traveling this week? You're, you're, you're. Uh, I was supposed to be in Mexico, and it was postponed for a week. So. Luckily, I didn't have to do a red-eye last night and, you know, get on this Google Hangout uh, all literally red-eyed. Um, so You, you, don't, you really better.
0: don't look any better than normal, so I, I should have noticed a difference.
1: <laughs> I try to set the expectations low, yeah. <laughs> and I can only go up from
0: there. That's awesome,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing with all my uh, presentations. Like, you mentioned that the SET Expo is coming up. It's almost exactly two months, right?
0: Yeah, It's like, yeah.
1: uh our October 13 14 15, I think it is um, I know you're doing a presentation and I'm doing a, one of the workshops as well um, Which one, what is your workshop on so
0: so mine is going to be on on uh, proactive network maintenance which has kind of been a focus of mine for a while But it, it's going to be sort of on so you have proactive net you, you have PNM now um, what do you do to make it successful within your organization so we'll be talking about PM champions some of the key things that you can do to uh, have it be successful in your organization so it's kind of that focus you know we've kind of moved beyond the the theory and stuff like that now it's you know when the rubber meets the road how do we move forward from there so what's your presentation on
1: so um, th- th- it's kind of like two titles right it's a workshop this Speaker I'm reading it right now speaker's presentation title that's my title um, is managing docs capacity over HFC networks docsis 2030 and future 31 so I'm trying to go more into the 31 and I give some examples of uh, what could you offer with um, and, and a migration steps of say 12 downstream to 24 downstream to 32 downstream uh, single channel qualms uh, to docsis 3 1, 192 megahertz ofDM block and then multiple blocks and at what point do you upgrade to say 85 megahertz on the upstream? Should you even think about a 204 megahertz upstream? Uh, if you're going to do that, you might as well go to 1.218 gigahertz downstream. Uh, there's another option for 31 of 1.719 gigahertz downstream, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. So it's kind of like th- I like to be almost technology agnostic and talk about what are the pros and cons of all the different scenarios. Instead of us all just sitting back and analyzing, you know, analysis paralysis, we're analyzing all these options and we're not going anywhere with it. We have to, you know, draw a line in the sand and say, let's do something, you know. And what would this get me? And why can't I do this, or why should I do this? Blah blah blah. Well, that was the title of my presentation. The workshop workshop session is titled "Boxes 31 and IP Traffic Engineering: How to Stuff 10 Pounds of Stuff." into five, into a five pound bag, (laughs) how to stuff, 10 pounds of stuff. I, I would have just went right out and said shit.
0: <laughs> no, you, you know, exactly, know.
1: exactly. We're all the in cable industry, so come on, come yeah. on out.
0: Um. There might be one or two, one or two swear words that dispacking in, along with a couple adult beverages. So it's in,
1: it's in New Orleans, anyhow. Might so, <laughs> <my> see <favorite laughs> on Bourbon Street one of those yeah. nights, <laughs> the night before my workshop, and and yeah. of course you know how the workshops are probably eight a.m. after the party. So, yeah. so we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, well, I, th- I think I'm,
0: I'm gonna be doing one of those breakfasts um, Like the 7 or 730 a.m. Breakfast and I'm just oh no, that's gonna be brutal. So <laughs> oh, oh, good, good luck with that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I, will, I won't be there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, sure you will
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: So yeah, so uh, so we're looking forward to that that's coming up um, In in the news. So that's one of the in the news items. Um other things that's happened since our last uh, our last presentation is FCC did approve the merger of AT&T Direct TV So what makes that interesting is AT&T is now the world's largest? Uh, so I, I want to say this right um, Largest pay TV provider in in the world because they, they have 26 million customers uh, in the United States and Latin America which makes them larger than Comcast. Comcast has 22.4 million subscribers, which this 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 was from their uh, March statistic on them. So that they they the largest data and video provider in the world right now is is AT&T with this uh, merger. So that that puts them in an interesting position.
1: Definitely. Definitely what uh, I mean if Comcast time order what a merger would have went through. That would have been what thirty six million or something crazy. That
0: would have made them the largest. Yeah, that, that would have made them a, a mega mega mer- merger. Which they, there's kind of you know that I don't know if that's the reason that uh, the FCC didn't let that go through. Um, yeah. uh, interesting though, they, the FCC put a lot of stringent uh, regulations on AT and T. Um, they said you know of course AT and T must. Uh, abide by net neutrality rules, so you know they can't provide um, preferential Treatment to any any particular data traffic or anything that they're affiliated with uh, They must debundle data and video uh, Services especially to low-income su- to subscribers, and they have to offer a 3 to 10 megabit uh, data tier megabit per second data tier for low income subscribers at a really reduced rate And we don't know what that reduced rate is there's rumors. That it's going to be like around five to ten dollars a month So that you know this is kind of like wow. for that merger to go through they have to offer that uh, they have to be Transparent in disclosing their interconnection agreements with you know where they're getting their different data uh, bundles through on our edge providers and they all also must report their network performance uh, on some regular interval, uh, so, so that they can say, "Yes, you know, we are providing good, good uh, data
1: to um, to their subscribers." Or we're providing what we say we plan to provide. Yeah, just proving, yes. <laughs> proving we're providing it. Now, what's interesting about that is, uh, I, I kind of read in between the lines, and I, I listen to wording literally sometimes. And when you say low-income subscribers, what are they going to do? Look at their people's tax returns. Make yeah. sure you're not making too much money. Well, you made too much money. So you can't sign up for the three to five megabit per second service at 10 bucks a month. You must subscribe to my 50 megabit per second service at $100 a month. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know they regulate that. I mean, if you're a college student, can you get yeah.
0: this three to 10 megabits per second for, you know, de- depending on, on how you do that. So it will be interesting to see how they do that because there's likely to be a lot of people who you know? Who will be able to qualify for this this tier of service if it's available? So, and if
1: you're if you're a college student, do you have to? You can't be qualified as a dependent on your parents' tax return. Well, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> what is a subscriber? <laughs> a low income subscriber? Yeah, is it an independent or a depend? Like, what does that mean? I, I, I'm still up in up in the air there. I mean, because it sounds too good almost. Like, what if I don't use very much? I'm like. I wish I could get internet servers for three to five megabits per second for ten bucks a month. Who wouldn't want to get that? You know, <laughs> yeah, for an <laughs> extremely low price. Because yeah, that, that's that's really nice.
0: <laughs> so I, I think you know that was those are some of the concessions it looks like that uh, AT and T had to make in order for that deal to go through. But it it makes them a big big player. So
1: is it twenty six million? Twenty six million?
0: Uh, the number they they have. Uh, Look at my list here again. It's um 26 million customers in the United States, and uh, another 191 million customers in Latin America is what uh, more more than 191 million customers in Latin America, including Mexico and the Caribbean. So yeah. that's
1: that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding. And what what about the Charter Time Warner merger? Assuming that goes through. I, I assume that gets Time Warner Charger closer to Comcast, right? Uh, I, I would, to
0: yeah, I would think that'd make them very competitive with Comcast yeah. at that point. I, I haven't looked at what those numbers are, but that's that's going to be
1: a large operation if that goes through as well. It's an interesting trend because um, you probably also heard about you know the French company called Altice. And they're buying up a few companies here and there, and they just bought up or buying up Suddenlink. Yep. Uh, so it's interesting to see. Liberty Global uh, buying up companies in Latin America also, and and uh, it's kind of opening up not just within, say, one country, but across countries now. I think we have a Canada, a Canadian company, maybe I think it might be Kojiko or Videotron, that bought Atlantic Broadband. I don't know if you're familiar with ABB. Yeah, I am, but I, I didn't know that that acquisition that occurred. That was like, that was a couple years ago, I think. I think it was low. Many people didn't realize it
0: well yeah but atlantic broadband still still exists i mean it's under that name yeah. but i didn't know they were uh, owned by um by a canadian company
1: yeah and i i i wanted to say Kojiko or Videotron, now i can't remember which one hmm. but uh yeah it's interesting because now we got you know companies outside the us buying mso's or cable companies within the us which is yeah. kind of interesting so i uh, it's
0: it's uh it's very common in the business- in the industry right now for these acquisitions to to yeah. be going yeah. on so so another thing that happened uh in the first week of August was um the you know if, if you're familiar with the defcon the the uh black hat defcon conference that is it happens every year it's held uh, in las Vegas and they they have shows throughout the the world but this one is one that you know notoriously we've oftentimes had uh Coverage on how to hack cable modems, how to hack, hack Doxis networks and stuff. The good news is this year we didn't get any coverage. Uh, there was nothing on how to hack cable modems or you know nothing new on that end. Um, the bad news was there was a lot of coverage on how to hack uh, Internet of Things devices, IoT devices, and also how to hack Wi-Fi. There's a lot of Wi-Fi exploits, so uh, that does impact us just because those are all endpoints. That are on on the end of our cable modem so to speak some and and to some extent the Wi-Fi devices are right in our cable modem So there were coverage uh, on things like Wi-Fi access points that are part of cable modems You know the, the thing that we used to be concerned about before was web hacking um, You know WEP cracking uh, now. They're finding ways that you can and then for some time that uh, crack WPA but there was there's been a number of security exploits that they found just in uh, In Wi-Fi routers in general and I noticed in the month of July. There are a number of well uh, uh, Known cable modem vendors that came out with security fixes uh, which are basically firmware downloads to the cable modems So I would recommend that everyone kind of check with your cable modem vendor and find out do they have a, a latest firmware update for the cable modems for the Wi-Fi portion because of course that's included in the download uh, That's going to cover a lot of these patches that were discussed at the DEF CON conference um, And and you know, maybe unrelated to the DEF CON conference, but there's there have been a lot of Exploits exploits in the wild for uh, Wi-Fi side of things on on uh, cable modems and just Wi-Fi in general
1: so you're talking more of um, sniffing or cloning, um, not just uh, blocking or denial of service, uh, jamming, nothing of that sort. You're actually talking about getting into the wireless, decoding it, or figuring out how to uh, uh, steal information.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, so there's a couple of critical things that are going on. I mean, one is is just getting access into the the subscriber's home. But the the one that's actually more critical is is more of a man-in-the-middle attack, so people are getting access to the Wi-Fi access points, and then they turn them into uh, a man-in-the-middle attack, so you think that you're going to a site that has encryption that has you know an SSL tick uh, Certificate which means it's HTTPS encrypted, but once once they've accessed your Wi-Fi router They are able to see what's going over that what you think is a secure site? So you're doing your banking, or you're going to Amazon.com, and you're you think everything's encrypted, but they are actually able to get all of your credentials once they've compromised your Wi-Fi router. So it's actually pretty serious because yeah. you, you think oh, I'm mm-hmm. safe. I'm I'm in my home. I'm I'm doing banking information over HTTPS, which is a secure encrypted transaction. But the because the routers managing that. This is a man-in-the-middle attack and now they're able to get your banking credentials your Amazon username and password and send that back To a server somewhere and now they can be you log into your bank log into your Amazon account your ebay account and do Whatever they want with it. At yeah, that point, yeah. so this is really pretty severe what they can do with yeah. that type of information so that's good uh, info Update your Wi-Fi router firmware update, you know as, as cable operators update your cable modem firmware update to update that router firmware if it's attached to the cable modem and uh, Keep an eye on that stuff always use secure strong passwords two-factor authentication Really highly recommended because that way if there is something uh, someone logging into your your bank your your account somewhere you'll get notification uh, you'll you know you'll have to be required to authenticate from your from your phone via SMS or something if it's coming from a, an IP that address that you've not logged into before.
1: So, oh. so more of the story is change your default user password from admin password. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> or or admin change me. <laughs> one of those. Yeah yeah
0: admin admin.
1: Yes, there you go. Another good one. Or the old one was Linksys or Cisco 123 yeah. or just Cisco Cisco. Yep, yep.
0: <laughs> so last week, we uh, last Thursday and Friday, we had a face to face meeting for the PNM, the Proactive Network Maintenance Working Group called Ingenious at uh, Cable Labs headquarters in Louisville, Colorado. And the goal was to um, bring everyone together that's uh, actively using some of the PNM software from cable labs or those of us who are working on PNM software applications and Start updating the PNM best practices document that cable Labs has put together And, And and we did actually talk about this you know this document sort of who reads it? What's its intended purpose and we kind of agreed that it's it's read by a lot of people that are programmers that are trying to figure out how to Interpret pre equalizer coefficients and stuff like that and and um and the things that we're going to be adding to the document that was not previously in there, pre- previously in there are things like how to do upstream spectrum analysis using the CMTS, how to do downstream spectrum analysis using the cable modems, how to do things like detect intermittent cable modems in the network, detect where ingress is coming into the plant uh, in the network, how to Practically understand. So you know we talk about echo cavities. We talk about things like um, TDR distances in the PNM best practices document We don't necessarily talk about how to actually go out and find those maybe using leakage detection meters and stuff like that in the field so we're going to update those documents with all the things that we've learned about in the last several years since that document was last updated and uh, put a lot more of the, the practical things, the, the new things that we've learned about in the last
1: several years, so. Nice. As a, as I, talked a, to, I talked to Ron Aranek, who I know was out there also, and he, and he did mention one of the things that uh, was interesting is Comcast is very aggressive in implementing the newer 3.0 modems out in the field that have all these features. So the more endpoints we have, the more test points we have, and if they have full bandwidth capture, then you basically can do if you have full spectrum of analog video, uh, digital video, DOCSIS, everything is full. There's no need to inject sweep points. You already have a sweepless sweep, you already have all the channels there. You can pull the modem for its spectrum analysis. And if you see uh, standing waves, just like we do the calculations on the upstream. Uh, pre-equalization standing waves and frequency response to find out these cavities and the problems where the the impedance mismatches occur We could do the same thing sort of on the downstream, right? We can look at the downstream spectrum analysis do some mathematics on that trace Compare one trace to another trace to one modem to one modem or another modem and start Narrowing down where we think the problem might occur or coming into. Yeah, so that's, that's exactly right
0: and, and and part of this, you know, so when you talk about seeing a standing wave in a downstream Part of what we need to update in a document is educating people on, you see that standing wave, how do you make the calculation, which is not a very cal- complicated calculation, but how do we make the calculation of turning that standing wave and turning that into a distance in feet or meters, d- depending on, mm-hmm. on, what, on what system you use. And what and does that, that mean? And what does that mean? You know, where do we figure out where the impairments are? Where do we? How do we look at maybe multiple homes that are seeing the same standing wave, and then back that out Man. into a correlation group? How do we look at other things that we see in that full band capture? Things like suckouts, tilt, um, adjacent channels that you know maybe you have your your doxis signals at one level and your video signals at a at a different level, and say well. I have something in my head end that's not balanced properly, and then take action on that. So, I mean, these are all things that we understand when we see it maybe in the head end using uh, a spectrum analyzer. But now that we're using full band capture modems in a subscriber's home, say, okay, this is something I can go back and fix in the head end, or this is something that's probably in an RF amplifier because it's a you know maybe a a, a peak. Uh, A resonant peaking thing that you know something we saw back when we worked at C core years and years ago (laughs) And uh, or or maybe it's a it's a suck out that could be in the outside plant or could be even in the subscribers home So there's lots of things that we you know kind of like a library that we need to create and say What do each of these different signatures mean and when we have them? where do we look for them and how do we take action on them because The number of DOCSIS 3.0 modems that have full band capture is just increasing so much and Now we're you know first. We'll show people if you're not already doing this Here's how you do it to get the data from the full band capture modems, and then once you have the data Here's how you interpret that data to do something meaningful with it to tell your technicians Here's a problem. Go fix it, and here's where you should look for the problem
1: yeah, I, I I was talking to a few guys from Comcast that deal with the P&M stuff quite a bit. And I asked them, I said, are you also looking at the upstream spectrum analysis in the modem? Um, they said, yeah, it's just a matter of, well, the modems they have deployed, do they even have that functionality? Maybe not. Um, because Broadcom, like you mentioned from the, one of your last trips to Cable Labs, I think it was in Atlanta, the Winter Conference maybe. Yes. Where they announced the upstream spectrum analysis. You know, when we first talked about it, I thought, what good is that, right? What good is it seeing the noise at the house when it doesn't, um, when all the noise funnels back to the, the head end? So I want to see all the noise at the head end, but if I can see the noise in an individual house, maybe that matches up with the head end so I know exactly where it's coming from. So I sat back and thought, well, how would I do divide and conquer troubleshooting? How would I? Look at one leg of a node to see if the ingress is coming in normally you would probe a port and look at a spectrum analyzer You see ingress coming in and say there it is But how are you going to use this modem information and, and as I talk to those guys? I think what's going to happen is they're pulling the modems all the time anyway. It's not like I'm going to have to uh, Instantaneously pull each modem and say all right. Where's the ingress coming from? I could look at my historical data gathering and see where the ingress was coming from it, it, Assuming that it captured the ingress at the time. I did the polling you know yeah. it, it could be it could be impulse, you know very intermittent
0: So so when I when I did the uh, when I was at the at cable labs at the I think it was the winter conference That was in Atlanta um, That particular version of Broadcom modem that I was doing the the testing on that was their their latest one That they did not have the diplex filter in uh, or I- at least in that particular modem they they were able to look at the noise floor from uh, You know zero megahertz up to fifty four yeah, yeah. or, or whatever you, basically you could see the noise floor really nicely yeah. What they've what they've done now is they came up with another firmware update so that a lot of a lot of the existing deployed Modems out there at least for the Broadcom modem I think Intel has also done the same thing that have diplex filters in them Um, so you so you you have this diplex filter in a modem and and what that means is you have a lot of attenuation From you know zero megahertz up to 42 megahertz wherever the diplex filter is rolling off That means you you can't see a lot of the ingress noise from from you know zero to 42 megahertz But what they did is they collected data and we got to see this data cable modems off of a couple of hundred thousand modems and they would look at the noise, the ingress coming from homes just above forty-two megahertz, and it was amazing. Between forty-two megahertz and you know where wherever the uh, just above forty-two megahertz, it was amazing. You look at a hundred thousand modems or a couple hundred thousand modems, how much noise you can see just above that diplex filler, and then make assumptions based on that. Where you know you look at 200,000 modems and and you say okay out of these 200,000 modems We can see a few percent of them that the noise floor just above 42 megahertz is significantly elevated and then roll trucks based on that and find out in those homes where the noise floor above 42 megahertz is significantly elevated everyone you know a large percentage of those homes had significant ingress leaking out into the plant so even at that, like you're, you know, you're saying, well, you're worried. We're
1: not, gonna, yeah. It's way, way better than nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's, it's like using the full bandwidth capture that's on the high side of the diplex filter to look at it upstream, even though you know it's going to be attenuated from the high side of the diplex filter. Now the newer feature that you were looking at also was I, I talked to some Broadcom guys at the INTX show in Chicago and they said, you know, just by, you know, walking through the hallway, we we're talking about, we have an extra FPGA. What are you going to do with it? said, so, hey, we could activate it on the low side of the diplex filter. They're like, hmm, let's do it. So it wasn't any big big master plan. They just activated it, and so after they did it, they're like, this is not a bad idea. If I can have a spectrum analysis on the upstream and the low side of the diplex filter, any noise that comes from the drop cable and the house will show up in my modem, and I can read it from from anywhere in the world, you know, like SNMP, and I can see – you're talking about – Added white Gaussian noise, a high noise floor. But if I want to look at uh, ingress or maybe real-time polling and see, maybe I don't want to say impulse noise because you know that thing is not going to be fast enough probably to pick up, you know, 10 microsecond impulse noise. But if I have it a peak hold on, maybe I can capture uh, uh, steady-state ingress like ham radio, shortwave radio, CB.
0: Or uh, HP&A or, you know, other yeah. really high-level signals that are there for yeah. long periods of time that
1: exactly. are plaguing you. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, like we talked about, we keep doing this every Google Hangout, uh, the more of these devices we have in the field and the more control or visibility we have, the more troubleshooting we can do. I was even thinking about, you talked about the levels of the digital and the analog, and it used to be back in the day, the head engineer would have to check levels every morning <laughs> just to make sure every digital level was about the same level coming out of the head end. Well, yeah. if we're already looking at the levels of every single modem, we could probably say, well, every modem in the service group right here seems to be off. Well, if they're all off, then it's probably at the head end, you know, um, so this gives us just more visibility to, to maybe decide which, which, uh, hubs and head ends we have to start tweaking to maybe get our levels in line. I mean, it could be other things too, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, (laughs) so we have, um, we have a bunch of questions in the mailbag. Is there anything you want to cover before I, I start on the questions and answers that we have
1: lined up? Now, shoot, go ahead. I know we tried to answer some of these already, but uh, I haven't looked at them in a while, so we'll, yeah, we'll so, ad lib.
0: So we have a question from Nakish that uh, says, uh, regarding partial mode of a cable modem, what what are the causes behind the cable modem going into co- partial mode, and and how do we rectify this problem? So, was
1: yeah. this upstream or downstream, or did he say? Uh, well, let, let,
0: yeah, I think we can just cover partial mode in general, and and you know I know we've covered this way way in 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 the past in one of our um, hangouts, but I, I think just covering what partial mode is, describe
1: what it is, and and then generally what it's actually it. it's, it's a good it's a good question because I think since then I may have even come up with uh, more information that I wasn't even aware of the downstream partial mode. Um, and Doxis 3.0 the modem locks let's say i give you an example of four downstreams four channel bonded modem it's only locking on one of those downstreams as a primary right and, and then it's bonding across all four so you you know, get the added benefit of more speed but that one downstream if you lose it you lose downstream sync messages you lose docsis you lose timing uh, the modem goes offline starts reskating downstream again now let's suppose you don't lose the, the primary but you lose you have a suck out at uh, 609 megahertz and that's Actually, one of his secondary channels meaning he's locked on uh, 40, 603 megahertz which is his primary just for this Example and he loses 609 which is a secondary channel the modem According to the spec is supposed to send the CM status message back to the CMTS And then the CMTS can decide uh, if certain configurations are done and certain features are set up that I can put them in a dynamic bonding group So I have two choices. I can either Make him re-register and drop to the primary channel only Uh, And maybe I can do that dynamically where he doesn't re-register So all of his traffic gets sent down the primary So he's not bonding at all But in that case I can mark him as partial online And when that downstream gets reported as good again I can put him back in four-channel bonding The other option is I put him to a subset bonding group So I drop him from four-channel bonding to three-channel bonding so I dynamically make a bonding group just for that modem. I say, hey, I know 609 is bad, so you can use the other three channels for bonding. So now I push all his service flows through three-channel bonding group. So here's the interesting I just lear- thing I just learned not that long ago was the CM status message itself is not as robust as I thought. It's not a three-way handshake with acknowledgements from the CMTS, which means if the cable modem has an event and it reports that event to the CMTS, but for some reason, the CMTS doesn't hear it. That might never happen at all, meaning this, the cable modem won't keep reporting the CM status event.
0: Now, now when you're saying CM status, I'm thinking ranging, but I, I think maybe I'm I'm missing what, what you're talking about, a different status message. Yeah,
1: so we can process. There's qualm lock status message. There's battery mode status message. There's uh, qualm unlock, QAM lock. Uh, there's like...
0: Okay, so it's the it's, it's the like status, the, it's the the mode or the current the current status that the the modem is in, like uh, you know, init, initial ranging, init R one, init R two. Um, it's it's but, the but, the different mode, or the, you know, up to rain, up to registered. Is that the this, this is
1: after this is after registration?
0: Okay, this is after it it's is
1: regist- after registration. So it, it can report uh, uh, if the qualm has become unlocked. It can report if the QAM has relocked. so when a 3.0 modem is registered online and something happens, the downstream goes down, um, uh, the modem goes into battery backup mode, that will generate a CM status message back to the CMTS, and then it's up to him to make the decision what to do with it. And when do these status messages occur? Are they part of the
0: ranging process, or is this a completely separate process?
1: I'm not entirely sure I'm not entirely sure if it's part of my you know the keep alive every 15 seconds or not No, it wouldn't be I, I believe it's uh, uh I have to look that one up again to be perfectly honest But either way my point is what happens if the cable modem does have an event It reports it back because has a report back on the upstream and the upstream happens to be noisy So I end up losing that burst I know in in the Cisco CMTS by default, the cable modem will send twice in like five seconds or something like that. We have a certain uh, settings for how many times and how many seconds, but if I lose both of those messages, the CMTS doesn't know he had an event and the cable modem will never report it again until a different event occurs. So that modem could have an issue with one of the frequencies and not go into partial mode and it's just dropping all its packets on 609 because there is no frequency at 609. So the CMTS is still sending packets down 609, do you understand? Yep. So I, I thought it was kind of interesting. I think in 3.1, DOCSIS 3.1 spec, they were adding, I haven't looked at it lately, but they were gonna add a, uh, like an acknowledgement, like a three-way handshake for this CM status message. That way you knew it actually did occur or did the CMTS did see it. Okay. Which to me makes a lot more sense. Um, so because I've had issues where the modem reported an issue, CMTS put it into partial mode. Then a the modem reported the qualm came back, but that message got dropped and the CMTS never heard it again. So the modem stayed in partial mode forever. So then every night I would have to go through the CMTS potentially and say, let's look at this modem. Uh, let's look at uh, the RF uh, uh, quality at the modem. There's no problems. Uh, maybe I can take it out of partial mode manually. Maybe I can write a script or a test command to take it out of partial mode.
0: Yeah, so I, I mean the, the partial mode is normally caused by an RF impairment, and I, I, I know with older iOS firmware Once that modem went into partial mode even when you remove the RF impairment the modem would be stuck in partial mode so The only way to get the modem back on partial mode out of partial mode once you you've fixed the, the RF impairment would be to reboot the modem is that is that something that now that, will it will self heal itself? Say you remove yeah, the arm yeah. impairment, the modem will the CMTS will detect the impairment's gone, and now the modem will come back yeah, out that, of
1: partial. Yeah, way back in the day when wideband and Docs three OS first came out, we didn't have at least for Cisco side, we didn't have a feature to track the CM status messages. I'm talking about. Like you, you might be confusing the CM status with like init r one, r two, and stuff like that. But it's, I don't think it's the same thing. Um, we have a I'm command. Just, I'm CMTS. just confused, man. <laughs> <laughs> you figure if we're confused, everybody else is confused too. <laughs> yeah, <that's it. laughs> so, so we have a command on the CMTS that would activate the the listening of these CM status messages and make decisions on it. So you're thinking of old iOS where we didn't have the command, we didn't have the feature. Modems would fail their Mac domain descriptor and just drop offline and register traditional DOCSIS. Right. So they wouldn't be W online. It would just be online only. And then they would never go back to W online unless you reboot them. Right.
0: Yes. That was a pain.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was the old way. The new way was put the modem into partial mode. It would actually report P online. And the even better way is push it to a subset bonding group, market P online, but then take it out gracefully whenever it tells me that everything's good again. So it's self-healing. Yes. And that, that's downstream. That's downstream. So downstream is, is uh, it is what it is. Um, upstream is actually easier because all the traffic on the upstream goes back to the CMTS. So the CMTS knows what's going on in every single upstream channel for that modem, for every single modem. On the downstream, you have to pull the modems to know what's going on. And this is why we're requiring the modem to report a CM status message back because we don't know what's going on. On the upstream, we do know what's going on. The CMTS knows every upstream, the FEC, the uncorrectable FEC, the MER of every upstream, every modem, uh, you name it. So if a modem loses station maintenance on an upstream channel uh, more than, say, eight times, um, we have some certain settings that you can manipulate, um, then we can mark that upstream channel, instead of STA as uh, doing station maintenance and stable, we can mark it as DR, which means disabled with ranging continue. We can mark an upstream on a upstream bonded modem down and when it reports it's back, we'll keep trying to range on every 15 seconds or so, and it reports it's back again or MER is good again, we can put it back to STA mode, which puts it into full bonding. So because the CMTS allocates the mini slots, so here's my prognosticator of mini slot title. (laughs) When the CMTS allocates mini slots, it can say, you know what? That modem, modem A, uh, his upstream one looks bad. So I'm just going to allocate many slots in upstream zero, two, and three. So okay. hence, I just put them in three-channel upstream bonding instead of four.
0: Yeah. So it's
1: much easier to do upstream than it is to do downstream.
0: And, and I will say the same thing used to happen in the upstream with the older iOS uh, software where when when a modem would to go into... Partial mode in the upstream you'd fix the upstream impairment, but that modem would stay in partial mode until you rebooted it So this is another thing with with a newer iOS uh, f- Firmware and and why I really recommend customers stay on on contract with uh, with 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 you know with Cisco or with any of their, yeah. their firmware vendors keep getting that new iOS software and installing it on a CMTS is because it really really helps improve the performance of the plant. if you're on an older version of iOS software and your modems are getting stuck in partial mode even though you're fixing the performance of the plant it's going to stay there until you know you get a newer iOS because these features are constantly being added and it really really improves the performance of your
1: network So let me have one more tidbit with and you'll appreciate this because of all the work you know, you and I have done mod profiles and knowing the difference between The bursts and you know, the request burst IM burst station maintenance burst a long a short or a all that um, Because the partial mode is being based on the system And if that station maintenance burst in your mod profile is still QPSK You could have this window that I call no man's land where nothing happens, but you drop all your packets so Let's say your M.E.R. Is between 13 DB and 23 DB if your upstream MER is 20 DB the QPSK station maintenance will still work fine and the motor will never go in the partial mode <laughs> but your 64 qualm is gonna drop all day so you're not gonna get yeah. in traffic
0: yeah so, so I, I mean just just to reiterate this one more time to anyone who's listening please 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 change initial station maintenance and and station maintenance which is your modulation profile uh, 3 and 4 to 16 qam i mean john's yeah. just giving you another reason why it's yeah. going to be problematic cuz it the default is normally qpsk if you look at your modulation profile you're going to see qpsk for station maintenance and initial station maintenance yeah. changing that to 16 qam just it fixes so many things it it yeah, makes it, your system run so much it, better
1: it's funny it's like you're making it less robust but you're actually getting it closer to what the data is really running. Yeah. You know, if I had my way, people would come back to me and say, well, why don't we just run 64 QAM for the maintenance of the modem to match up with 64 QAM of the data? I'm like... Uh, the chip because- doesn't support it. <laughs> yeah, the chip doesn't support it. Exactly. That's what it is.
0: Yep. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's something that I, I really... Almost every system I work on that's one of the uh, first changes We make is to change that mod profile from QPSK to 16 qualms so. Yeah,
1: that station maintenance burst affects ping doxus versus ping it affects the flap list it affects uh, Potentially levels and M.E.R. Readings
0: it affects pre-equalization
1: it affects, it affects pre-equalization. I got to <laughs> add that one. I knew there was one more and it affects the upstream bonding partial mode So there's five things that station maintenance burst is affecting
0: yeah when we when we put a PM system in We will see you know say of a thousand modems. We'll see 200 modems that are red And then we change from QPSK to 16 QAM, and those 200 red modems will double to 400 red modems So it really really changes uh, Pre-equalization as well so now I have to, uh, I, I knew you
1: believe that because I knew there was another one. I kept forgetting to throw under my list of <laughs> what, uh, that really does affect because that's the whole reason why we changed the preamble on our IM and SM burst because the equalization is based on the preamble of those bursts. So we need a longer burst to get yeah. a good reading. And, uh, if it's too short, we don't get a good reading and we have, um, uh, uh, fluctuating MER readings and the pre Q doesn't track correctly. And
0: yeah, okay. So, so you touched on DR uh, when you're talking about ranging status message. We have a question from uh, a, a, I think Aslan. I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He says, "What does DR mean in ranging status?" And also, what does DI mean?
1: So the the DR. So if you do show modem with the MAC address and verbose. Uh, you'll verbose obviously means everything, right? Uh, so you we're get ver- everything, we're ver- we're verbose. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm very verbose, <laughs> gregarious. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Throw some more bombastic words at you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, under that verbose output, you'll see all the upstream channels, uh, and the levels, and the MER, um, the max power, everything for that modem's upstream and downstream and service flows. uh and it should say STA, meaning the current state of every upstream is STA, meaning uh, it's doing station maintenance. If it says DR, it's basically disabled, and it's, R means ranging. So it's disabled with continuous ranging. Because there's another state called CONT, which I think is continue, uh, but it might end up in the DR state anyway. And DI was disable, I'd have to look it up again. There's a chart of what all the letters actually mean. Did did I give the answer in the uh, in the in when you asked this before? Yeah, <laughs> I might have looked it up and uh,
0: I'm looking yeah, to see if it's here. Yeah. But I I don't, uh, I, yeah, don't I don't see what DI means. You have Dora here. Your normal discover, <laughs> offer, request, acknowledge, a NIT IO, a DR, and a NIT I to indicate those four stages of registration.
1: Yeah. We needed new uh, mnemonic for uh, DOCSIS three one, right? I don't think it's Dora anymore, is it? Because it's uh, I was going through some training with this before. I don't know if it's three one or or something else, but it's not just Discover Offer Request acknowledge for DHCP. I have to look that one up. We need to come up with some more acronyms and mnemonics. <laughs> All right, move on to the next question.
0: Okay, so from Anil, he says Hi, normally we do amplifier balancing in DOCSIS 2.0 with a single frequency at 22 megahertz at an RF level of 20 dBmv at, at the return input. In DOCSIS 3 with four channel bonding, what could be the balancing technique? Do we need tilt? How do we do this? What changes from DOCSIS 2.0? Is it upstream? Yes.
1: Upstream. Yeah. So, I mean, because DOCSIS 3.0 on the upstream is not like 2.0, I mean, it's not like 3.0 on the downstream, meaning there is no primary channel. On the downstream, we have a modem blocks onto a primary channel as its control channel, and then it bonds across all the channels as part of its bonding group. On the upstream, we do station maintenance with every single upstream channel that modem is using. So, this actually adds what I call more availability and reliability on the upstream, because if I lose one of those upstreams, He's still doing station maintenance on all the other upstream, so he never goes down. So it doesn't matter if I lose one upstream or two upstreams, the modem, as long as one of those upstreams say, says STA, that means it's going to stay online. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at balancing, the levels are still doing station maintenance on every single channel independently. So if I go to four channel upstream bonding and the modems transmitting, say, 40 dBmV at one frequency, it should be transmitting 40 dBmV at all the other three frequencies as well because they're all independent upstreams. Now, the problem comes in when you start hitting the max output, because we know when we do 64 qualm, four channel upstream bonding, 51 dBmV is the max. So if I go from two channel bonding to four channel upstream bonding and your levels are under 51, they won't change. Like a lot of people think you drop three dB. The modal transmit levels don't change by three dB unless you hit the maximum ceiling so if I'm at two-channel upstream bonding and I'm off a 23 dB tap, and the modem was transmitting 50 dBmV, well, if I go from two-channel to four-channel, all four channels will transmit 50 dBmV. It won't drop to 47, 47, 47, 47. You understand?
0: Yep, absolutely.
1: Because it'll go 50 for each one, and they're all under 51, so it's still legit.
0: And and your return, it's it's still a unity gain. It's it's exactly. It's still the like
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> the <laughs> loss from modem to CMTS hasn't changed.
1: Yeah, so it looks at each upstream independently
0: Yeah, so uh, I think I mean for balancing for Docsis 3.0. It's still like balancing for Docsis 2.0 Correct, correct. So you I mean you I, could you could do this with a tone uh, You know, yeah. to, uh, which is the way we used to balance
1: the returns uh, Yeah, same way you shoot, shoot for unity gain and whatever you really wanted to run in your cable plant You could manipulate the cable modem levels by just manipulating padding and head end yep, You know, the modems will have long loop level control. They'll just jack their levels up to hit the CMTS at zero. So if I just change padding in the head end, that's what's going to dictate what really hits my amplifiers.
0: Yeah, and I got to tell you, a lot of times when I'm working with customers, especially ones that don't know much about balancing their returns, I will will a lot of times have them just adjust padding at the return path receiver to optimize the SNR, MER of the modems coming back in because I – I know they don't have the capability to go out and rebalance their return, but (laughs) if if the modems have you know if we can adjust the padding so that we can get a really good SNR from the majority of the modems and a good upstream transmit power from the majority of the modems then we've we've achieved relative success
1: Yeah, I mean you think about it the limiting factor like we always talk about is probably the analog optical link and uh, if I can hit that hotter uh, then you'll probably get a better MER. And if you put more, it's funny. It's like if I could take padding from the head end and put it in front of the laser, the upstream laser, that would be probably even better. Oh, absolutely. You're not you're not you're not changing anything, but by moving padding from one point to another, you're changing the the OMI of the laser potentially, uh, because you're getting less noise into the laser. Yes. So.
0: Okay, um, we'll do uh, We'll do one more question here, and we have to take this one because if, if we don't uh, Our friend Brian Wilson will will give us problems and and he has an interesting question We need to get him back on the show here or he's probably gonna ask crazy questions like this again But his question is where do you see msos going in the next 36 months? X pawn, or you know some sort of pawn or docsis 3.1 so this is this is definitely a pro uh, uh, prognostication. Prognostication. <laughs> bring out your your crystal ball type question let me, here. Let me
1: bring out my procrastination on my prognost- prognostication. We'll procrastinate on a question. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, I do appreciate that one. So, uh, where do we think MSOs are going? <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to have a funny answer to that one. <laughs> They're, they'll all be retired by then. <laughs> so Where are they going? Um, This is part of the analysis paralysis, right? I mean, I I really think if you're a publicly traded company, Wall Street kind of dictates what you can and cannot do. Your stockholders are going to, you know, no, we're not doing that if you're going to spend a billion dollars on an HFC plan upgrade. If you're going to do an HFC plan upgrade, why don't you just do fiber now? Um, If we look at all the numbers to do fiber, we probably could just look at what is it costing Google and Verizon's Fios? Are they really making fiber ubiquitous everywhere or are they just cherry picking where they know they can get good money you know just like you talk about the at&t stipulation of you can't just pick and choose where you want to offer your services you have to be able to offer it to maybe everywhere uh so it's going to cost more money and everything comes down to money i mean if money wasn't the object we'd run fiber right to everybody's i say eyeballs you know <laughs> you would do holograms in the house instead of tvs and everything else and you just run fiber in um but money is where it's at. HFC plant is what we have. We're gonna exploit that as long as we can. We're gonna keep uh <laughs> going going to that cash cow. Uh and and uh our return on investment is we have to keep investing to keep it up, but I can see nodes dropping smaller and smaller, but not not R Fog everywhere, not GPON Epon everywhere. Um I think remote fi has s- some great advantages. Um, when you and I talked about upstream, 85 megahertz, 204 megahertz upstream, 85 megahertz upstream, I think makes a lot of sense in the case of a lot of legacy set-top boxes in the in the everywhere, especially in the U.S. They have a downstream uh, uh, addressability channel uh, at like 104 megahertz, so we are looking at an 85-102 megahertz split. Some people are quoting eighty-five one oh five, but we actually had to cut it down to 102 so the downstream 104 could still work. 85 megahertz upstream to me makes a lot of sense because I doubled my upstream. I can fit at least eight ATDMA channels in there. I can timeshare with DOCSIS 3.1 and get potentially, I did the math on this. Uh, if I can get to 256 QAM upstream with DOCSIS 3.1 and and I, slice it up into six megahertz and do 13 times six is like 78 megahertz. I can fit it in 585. I can run different modulation at different subcarriers in case my noise floor is not flat, which it won't be. Uh, but I can get close to 470 megabits per second. So that right there could offer a two, 250 megabit per second service on the upstream. That should be enough to offer a two gig service on the downstream, if not more. Yep. So if I do that on the upstream 585, and then I say, all right, my downstream, I'm not going to upgrade 750, 860 to 1 gig. Why would I do that? Go right to 1.218 gig. That's in the DOCSIS 3.1 spec. Yes, I would have to change out taps. I, wouldn't, I shouldn't have to change out coax, I would hope. Depends on how bad the coax is, right? If it's a little waterlogged, you're going to have more roll-off on the high end. <laughs> but a clean, clean coax should go well past 1.218. I do have to worry about Mocha channel D1 at 1150. So that's something we have to keep in, keep in mind is if I'm, well, using yeah, it, we
0: have filters for that. So exactly, exactly.
1: So, so you bring it up, but then you have to make sure that people know how to deal with it. Uh, you, you um, throw in some DOCSIS three, on the downstream, you extended your downstream, you do analog reclamation. I thought another funny term was digital reclamation, <laughs> not yeah. only reclaiming analog, but taking the MPEG two and squeezing it to MPEG four. If not, what some people call MPEG-5, H-E-V-C, which is H.265? Yes. I think it is? Yeah. So it's even better compression. So you go from a legacy set-top box to an IP set-top box. So here's where we're talking more money, right? The CPE is more money, changing out all the set-top boxes. Um, So maybe you don't do that. Maybe you don't need to do analog and digital reclamation because you went to 1.218 gigahertz. Um, you know, there's going to be more attenuation, so maybe your nodes had to drop to node plus two, or node plus one, or node plus zero. Even if you get down to node plus zero, you could do remote PHY and get even better MER and do higher modulation schemes with DOCSIS 3.1. Remote PHY is taking the, say the the CMTS chipset and put it in the node itself, so it's yeah. Ethernet. It's Ethernet to the node.
0: Yeah, and that, and that's something that I think we. we've Discussed before that we need to get rid of the analog optics in the return it, and especially yeah. if you're going out to 85 megahertz or 200 megahertz That's that's a requirement. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and and if I went to 204 on the upstream Because of the loss of coax because of thermal fluctuations. I Cannot see us getting around doing a 204 diplex in any N plus X architecture meaning i could see a 204 megahertz upstream if there's less coax mm-hmm. meaning yeah. i could see a 204 upstream in an rfog in a remote fine node plus zero even a regular node plus zero a 204 would probably be doable you, you understand why right because less yeah. Coax. yeah much less coax if there's a lot of coax you're gonna have thermal swing the levels can change a, more than people think uh, that's part of my speech for the the expo coming up in october is um, even looking at 85, we see potentially plus or minus 5 dB swing. That's 10 dB range from the modem.
0: Yeah, you need a a lot of thermal uh, compensation or an AGC in (laughs) your return then.
1: You know, I thought about upstream AGC, and I'm thinking, how would you get a continuous carrier on the upstream? (laughs) (laughs)
0: What would you? you need to you put. A, well, you need to put a car- You need to put a pilot in return.
1: End of line. Every end of line, you need a CW generator hanging off the pole.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> You just, know, watch. you can you can do that with a modem. I mean, a, a hey. modem could generate a pilot. <laughs> you don't want to do it.
1: <laughs> we could we could just we could just balance off the internal ingress we always see. Yeah. AM. <laughs> AM yeah, Radio. AM radio. <laughs> oh, God.
0: Oh my gosh. So, so you know, from my point of view, I think the the good thing is that the cable operators have a lot of opportunities. They can extend their existing HFC with DOCSIS 3.1. They have RFOG and they have PON for greenfield applications where that, you know, they're already doing that right now with with both EPON and GPON. So,
1: there's a lot of opportunities. Uh, What I see is like EPON, GPON, and even DOCSIS provisioning over EPON or GPON. Uh, being cherry picked, meaning if you have only five subscribers in a fiber node, that's easy pickings. You know, yeah. I will cherry pick those and give them GPON. And I even have customers, my customers, MSOs, cable companies, doing GPON for data and RFog for the video, because they still got to get video out there too.
0: Yes, yeah, and that's not, yeah, that's an overlay, or you yeah. can go with Dish or TV or something. <laughs> 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 so nay <laughs> on a dchet yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right John I think this this is our longest uh show yet um I think we've covered everything in a lot of questions I want to thank you for your time thanks everyone for joining and we'll call this one a wrap so my right. Ple- pleasure as always all right take care right, guys. John. bye yeah bye Oh. <laughs> think